0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's a lot of things to talk about right now. The, the thing that I'd like to discuss right now is, is really kind of to take a, an, an overall look at the cosmos and the shape of the universe. And, you know, there's a, an interesting comment, um, an interesting definition of genius that I heard that I liked very much. Um, which is that a, a genius is someone who is able to actually see reality as it exists. In other words, that's a, that's a very striking definition. The ability to see reality as it actually exists, because a lot of times we identify um, genius with the ability to conjure something completely new. And yet, if you look at Einstein, for instance... If Einstein's, if one of Einstein's contributions was to recognize uh, a curved universe, he didn't invent that. He saw what was there. So that's, a, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. In other words, sometimes, sometimes the greatest thing that you can do is actually appreciate what is actually already here. And of course we've got um, from the Torah the notion that all are blind until God opens their eyes. And there's a, uh, an amazing miracle. It's a miracle and it's not a miracle, but it is a miracle. That's, that's, that's given in the account of when uh, Hagar and Yishmael have left the house of Abraham and Sarah. And they're in the desert and they haven't got any water. And they're basically, they're going to die. And they're, they're, they're praying to God and they're basically on their, at the end. They're at the end of their life. The middle of the desert, no water. And it says God opens their eyes and he shows them that there's a well just a few yards away. In other words, in other words, God didn't create a miracle and and make a well. The well was already there. But he opened their eyes to see what was there. And, you know, this is this is one of the the great sort of uh, kind of. I don't know if the word discombobulated is a word, but let's just say it is a word. Let's just say that word was always there. Uh, You know, so it's one of the great kind of like frustrating things is that a lot of times we're trying to conjure things into existence. And the reality is that they're already there. We just have to push ourselves to take advantage of the opportunities that lie before us. But it's an extra blessing for God to give us the ability to open our eyes in order to see what's there and to appreciate what's there. So again, let's go back to to the subject at hand. We're going to talk about an overview of the cosmos and ideally to just see what's there. Just see what's there, okay? And um, and so I'd like to... uh, And we're going to tie this in to the anatomy... Or the structure of a human being, also, because we we know that a human being. It says in the Talmud that one who saves one person's life, it's like he saved the whole world. And one of the things that we learn from that is that each human being is a microcosm of the structure of the entire of the entire world. We know that um, one of the ways of analyzing reality and creation is is the ten spherot. These are This is just the the energies that God used to to create the universe. And we know that those ten spherot exist as sort of like in the larger sense in the universe, but they also exist within each person. If you ever look at sort of these Kabbalistic um, representations of the energy sources within a person, you'll see that the ten sphero correlate inside the human being as well. And there you see an example of what I'm talking about, how each human being is a microcosm of the entire universe. And the greatness of that and the amazing, empowering aspect of Torah, proper Torah study, is to understand that any change, any improvement, any elevation that you do in yourself, in terms of character refinement, in terms of chesed, kindness that you give to other people, reverberates throughout the entire universe. Even if you're alone in your room, any good thing that you do reverberates throughout the entire universe because you have a representation of the universe inside of you. So that's why everything counts. Plus and minus. Everything counts. Everything is meaningful. Um, you know, i just tell you just a, a, just a, a personal thing. My wife... Loves counting the Omer. We're in a period of the calendar right now, where um, it's between Pesach, Passover, and Shavuos, which is the holiday of the, the receiving of the Torah. And there's 50 days in between these two great holidays. And we're supposed to count the days leading up to the receiving of the Torah. That's one of the mitzvahs in the Torah. And, um, and she, we, we, she loves having the children count. She loves counting. She loves having all of her friends count and reminds them. And really, it's one of her joys, this, this counting process. And, you know, just, again, just a, just a, just a, just a personal kind of thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm going on the subject of just how important everything that we do is. So I've got, like, an eight-year-old girl, and she was so tired. We, we went out, uh, and we were walking home, and she was so tired, and it was just, you know, very difficult for her to wake up on this person's couch and then walk in the dark and everything like that. And, um, and uh, my wife Judy said to her, did you count the omer? And that she's eight, and she's miserable. She doesn't want to think about counting the omer at this moment. You know? But, what's the point? (laughs) The point is, is that when she gets older, when she gets older, she's going to realize how important it is, this counting. In other words, so many of the mitzvahs, they're so empowering. Because we realize these little things that we're doing really are important and really mean something. And they lend so much significance to our, to our lives. And, and when you grow up with that, or when you sort of like emerge in that stream, it just... Life changes. Life just becomes more beautiful and more meaningful. And I don't... I'm not exactly sure how someone who isn't connected with these type of teachings... Does it? You know, I don't, you know, Shabbos, let me just say something about Shabbos. Shabbos is a microcosm of the end of days, the fixing of the world. It's called a taste of Olam Haba, of the Garden of Eden. And, and the idea is that you do all of your shopping before Shabbos starts, and all of your cooking before Shabbos starts, and then when the day arrives it's like a set table for you and everything's been prepared like in the garden of eden and then and you can't do any work you can't do any work you can't answer the phone you can't you can't do any of these things and you've got a moment to celebrate life and so 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 much especially in this western society that we live in which is so money driven and so success driven and everything like this. Once a week, you stop, and even if you wanted to make that business phone call, even if you wanted to write that brilliant bestseller, even if you wanted to whatever, you know, invent that piece of software, you can't, you're not allowed to. Which means that for one day a week, you get to just enjoy life, you just get to celebrate whatever's going on. And what a healing thing, because we live in a society that just wants to rob you of that serenity constantly. And you're the only hope that you can have if you aren't fabulously wealthy. And if you are fabulously wealthy, those people are afraid of losing their money. So, you know, it says there's a quote from Shakespeare. I am probably paraphrasing it, which is an easy is the head that wears the crown. A lot of times people reach a certain position of power and you think, oh, they got it made. From the outside, that's what it looks like. You got it made. They're thinking, how can I maintain this and not lose it? So you, you, from the outside, you know, you, you, you always imagine that someone is, you know, you know, arrived somehow or without problems somehow. And it's like they've just got a different set of problems. And you say, well, I would love those set of problems. But you know what? They would not love those set of problems. For them, they're genuine problems that are as bothersome to you as your problems are to you. So we, this, this idea that, oh, at a certain point I get this, or I've got that in my bank account, or whatever it is, and then that's when everything, all of a sudden, all the problems go away. That, that's, that's a myth. It's a myth. And it's really from the Yetzirah, from the negative, evil inclination... Which is coming to take us out of the moment. Because the moment is our most precious space. And, and and Shabbos allows you to dwell in the moment. That's that's the greatness of it. You can just sort of like be here. It's a fantastic thing. Okay, so I want to return back to this notion of just the just the overview of the universe. And and uh Let's, let's begin with this question. I think that this is an important piece of information that I'm about to share with you because I think people wonder about this and they don't think it through. And, and so I'm going to help you sort of like synthesize some, 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 some things right now. And then hopefully you'll have a proper visualization that will allow you to see things as they actually are. Okay? So imagine, let's just sort of do a kind of a thought exercise. Um, Imagine you're in a rocket ship with unlimited fuel, okay? And it's just pointing straight up. And you're just traveling and traveling and traveling straight up in your rocket. Well, you're going by planets and stars and galaxies and black holes and you're, you're going through trillions and trillions, right? I saw somewhere, I don't know if this is accurate, but just the fact that someone wrote it with confidence is, is alarming enough. That there are more heavenly bodies than grains of sand. I mean, that in itself is just outrageous. So, just going up and up and up and up, you're traveling, you're traveling, you're traveling, you're traveling. Okay, when does it end? Does it end? When, when we talk about heaven... We're talking about a spiritual place. When do you hit heaven? Is there a line of demarcation? And what I'd like to suggest is, yes. Yes, there is. Um, Now listen to this. It says, and, and I think that uh, one of the reasons why this idea that I'm sharing with you is maybe not more widely known is because when, when the Torah gives a, a, a word for it, and especially the English translation for it's so abstract and we never run into it that it's, 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 it's confusing. So it blocks this piece of information that I'm trying to share with you. The word is rakia. Rakia is translated as the firmament. Do you know what the firmament is? I don't. I have no idea what the firmament is. (laughs) But this word "rakia" is a very important word. A very, very important word. So what is the rakia? Now, I was very blessed to, I was wondering about this, actually. And then that day, maybe it was the next day, but it was right after. I was wondering about what I'm sharing with you right now. I was fortunate enough to attend a, a, a class with Rabbi Simcha Weinberg, and he said in the name of his father, just as an aside during a lecture about something completely different, mentioned that the word rakia means gravity. That God created gravity with this word. A very interesting idea. Now let's, let's go back to this rocket ship ride that we're all taking. Now we know that, kabbalistically speaking, one of the descriptions and the, the visions of this world is that this world is stratified into four different layers, or what they call four worlds. We we're talking about our world, but each one is so stratified and distinct from the one on top of it that we can use the word world to describe them as different things, but you shouldn't think that they're parallel universes or anything like this. It's just one stream. And the The way of conceptualizing this that I'm always sharing with you, but I I just think it's so nice and practical, I'll say it again, is that we have this concept that one of the ways that God used in terms of creating this world was a term called Simpsom, which was that God took his infinite light, or an aspect of his light, right, and condensed it, and kept on condensing the light, until it became uh, a solid physicality, which is this physical universe. So in other words, there is a, again, to help you conceptualize this, imagine you've got ice, ice is material, it's physical, and the molecule is H2O. Then if the ice becomes cooled down, the molecules start moving faster and it becomes water. But the molecule is still H2O. It's still the same substance, even though it looks different. Now imagine you boil that water. It becomes gas, and you can't even see it anymore. But that water vapor, the same molecule is H2O. So now let's look at it in the reverse process, okay? You've got this water vapor. That's like God's light. And he condenses it. And that same godliness becomes condensed into, say, water. And then it becomes condensed into the physical universe. But it's all God's light. It's all the same matter. Do you understand? So, so at a certain point, the heavenly spheres, like when we use a term like Atcylus, which is the, the the greatest of the four worlds, the, the highest, the most you know, ethereal, when we talk about when we talk about these spiritual realms This is on the level, if you will, of water vapor, right? I mean, it's beyond any physicality, but I'm just trying to make a connection to the example that I'm giving. And so as it becomes condensed at a certain point, the universe took on a physicality, right? And that means that there is a border to the universe. That border is when gravity is created. That's the firmament. That's the rakia. Do you understand? Because at a certain point, the spiritual kicks into the physical. At a certain point. Right? So, so now, let's take ten steps back and imagine a map of the universe before you. You've got the heavens with all the trillions of heavenly bodies. But at a certain point, there's a rakia. And by the way, you want to hear something very interesting the word in modern Hebrew, rakia, you know what that means? Ceiling. Like like the top of a room, a ceiling. Okay? So at a certain point you've got your ceiling, you've got your rakia, and then the spiritual realms begin. But it's all one. So if you want to know where is heaven, that's that's where heaven is, you know? Like okay, so that's that's the overview. So that's seeing where we dwell, where, what, what it is, you know, now you've got a picture, okay? Now, I want to go deeper into this. So, so interestingly, Rabbi Weinberg also shared something very beautiful. He said, if you look at the, um, the account of creation in the Torah, and you um, ask yourself the following question, what is this, this story up? What story is being told? at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. So you can give a lot of answers. But, very compellingly, he quotes this passage. It's uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And this is this, this, this verse is coming right after the account of the seven days of creation. So God has just created the universe. He's created Shabbos on the seventh day, right? The the, the universe, thus putting a soul into the physical Structure of the universe, that's what Shabbos is. It's the soul of the world. Okay, So now the world has a body, the world has a soul, which is Shabbos. And now we have this verse. This is the story of the heavens and the earth. In other words, God is telling you, you know know what's going on right now in our lives and the world and everything like that? Do you know what all of reality is? This is the story of the heavens and the earth. And the relationship between the heavens and the earth. That's what, that's what this is. That's what we're doing. Okay. Now, now, let's approach this discussion from a slightly different angle. And I want to get back to show you how the human body is a microcosm for the physical universe. And, and actually, the universe in its entirety, actually. And, um, and to show you this, to talk about a particular name of God. Now, remember, whenever we discuss the names of God, it's always very important to understand that we're only talking about the God of Israel. We're only talking about the master of heavens and, and the earth, the creator of heavens and the earth, the author of the Torah. That is, God looked into the Torah, he made the world. That is, that is reality. There's only one God. And when we say that there's only one God, we don't mean that our God is stronger than your God. Our God is, can beat your God up. That's not what we're saying. We're saying there's only one God. <laughs> That's it. Nothing else exists. And in fact, in the universe, nothing else exists. All there is is God. That's all that exists is God. Okay? So, so it's very important that when we say God is one, we really mean it. We really mean that. So... So when we talk about different names of God, we're, we're approaching God or God is inviting us to, because God is infinite, and it would blow out our brains if we just tried to absorb it all. We couldn't, even if we tried. So, so God very lovingly uses different names to describe different aspects of his attributes, So that we can sort of like absorb how he's interacting with creation in different ways. Sometimes it will be through mercy. Sometimes it will be through din or judgment. Sometimes it will be in in different ways. So, So the different names key us into different ways that God is interacting with creation. Okay, but it's only talking about the one God of Israel. That's all we're talking about. Okay, so... And I also think it's helpful to say, I always try to mention this at the same time as the other thing, that um, each one of us has different names. So, for instance, my kids call me dad, but my wife doesn't call me dad. My wife calls me honey, right? And at a, at a place, you know, someone will call me, maybe one of my kids' friends, Mr. Sachs. So these are all, and God willing I'll have grandchildren, and they'll call me grandpa, or something like that. So, you, you know, or some people call me by a nickname. So each one of us has different names that are accurate manifestations of how we are revealing ourselves at that moment in that relationship. Do you understand? So the same is true for God. So those are the different names describing how he's revealing himself at that moment. Okay, so important to understand. Okay, so now let's talk about this particular name. And we're going to see some very interesting things right now. Thousands of years before the Big Bang Theory, we understood how God created the world. And it's a very parallel understanding. You know, it's amazing how much science is still catching up with Torah. And, and so God took... One physical particle, one tiny particle of matter. And this was from the foundation stone of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. So this is, I mean, this is at the very beginning of the universe. We're talking about the initial moment of the universe, okay? God took this physical particle, and then he just expanded it. He just sort of like blew it up, if you will. That's the Big Bang, right? So he blew it up and expanded it and expanded it and expanded it until it became the physical universe. And then God used this particular name, Shaddai. And then that completed the universe. In other words, that put borders, if you will. It means literally enough. Yeah. That, it, it just put parameters around the physical universe. Okay. Now, again, let's go back to what we were discussing before about this notion of a rakia, of a firmament, of a ceiling, right? So you see now that God, at a certain point, said this name and he commanded the physical universe to stop expanding. Do you see? But then there's still this spiritual worlds that surround the physical universe. Do you see it in your head? Do you follow? Do you understand? So, so it works very nicely. Now, what about physicists who say, well, the world is still expanding, or or, whether, or or maybe it's contracting, or maybe it's contracting and then expanding. You know, there are different theories. So what I would like to suggest is that if you, that you think of it in the following way. Imagine you're blowing into a balloon. Well, the more you blow into a balloon, the bigger it gets. But there's still parameters on the outside of the balloon. Right? So, in other words... However big the universe is getting, there's still, it's like a balloon, there's still an outside, a border around it. That's the Rakia. And then you have the spiritual world surrounding that. Okay. So, So, one of the things that's so amazing and so instructive about this is that we have to take a step back for a moment. You know, I mentioned the detail, but it's not a detail. It's huge. What? physical point did God use as the first point of creation? The foundation stone of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the base of Migdash. How awesome is that? In other words, let's just think this through for a moment. What does that mean? That means the entire universe is created out of the base of Migdash, the Holy Temple, or the entire universe is the Holy Temple. Now, let's just try to grasp that thought for a moment. You see, the Ramban talks about the narrative flow in the book of Shmos, in the book of Exodus. Because on a superficial level, it seems very, very disjointed. But when you understand this piece of information, you understand it's not disjointed at all. Okay? Which is the Jews are starting off in slavery. Then come the, then comes Moses and Aaron. And God says, go and take the Jews out of Egypt. Then you have all these miracles and wonders, all the plagues which shows how God has mastery over all of nature and all of creation. You have the Jews leaving Egypt. You have the sea splitting. You have us receiving the Torah. So we've got freedom. We've got truth. And then... All of a sudden, the Torah starts discussing the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which is the prototype of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the Besamigdash. And it talks about planks of wood and numbers of hooks and the weights of various things. And it becomes the most detailed-oriented thing for chapters. Chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters with seeming massive amounts of repetition. And then the Book of Exodus ends. So you're like... Wait a second, what is it? So the Ramban explains that what's happening is, now that we have freedom, now that we have truth, what we're doing is using that to turn the entire world into a dwelling place for God. That's what the Mishkan is. It's a dwelling place for God. So we're using our tools to turn the world into a dwelling place for God. That's ultimate harmony. That's the story of the heavens and the earth. That's the resolution. That's the closure. That's the end game. But now listen to this. So you say to me, we want to turn the world into a dwelling place for God? What did I just say a few moments ago? God took the first physical point of creation and He made the entire universe out of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. In other words... The world is a dwelling place for God. It already is. That's how God, that's what God made. That's what it is. So what's going on right now? We're trying to reveal that that's the truth. It's already there. Our job is to reveal that's what's there. So in other words, the hard work has already been done. The universe has already been created. It's already the Holy Temple. That's done! God did that, that the in first, the first moment God did that. Nothing is hard for God. Now our job is to reveal that's what's there. You see, there's, there are many instances of this in, in, in our learning. As, as one becomes more uh, scholarly and, and, and deeper in terms of understanding their lives and everything like that, you say, I've got to accomplish this, I've got to accomplish that. And that's, that's all true on one level. But in terms of the grander things, it's already been done. We just have to reveal that that's what's been done. That's our job, right? So, so now listen to this. Now I want to make this point, which I've uh, alerted you to, which is looking at the human being as a microcosm of the universe. And I want to show you something very interesting. Which is which is this name of God. This name of God. Which God used to put sort of parameters on the physical universe. On the universe, which is Shaddai. Right? And that begins with the letter Shin. Right? So Rabenu Bahaya, one of our greatest rabbis, um, who lived at the end of the 1200s and beginning of the 1300s, said that, Men and women both have the letter shin on their bodies. Okay? So it's not on your fingers. It's not on your toes. What he says is the letter shin is this area underneath your nose where your nostrils are formed. If you sort of like lift your head back, you'll see there's the letter shin is right there. And that God, that is the area where God breathed life into us. Because, you know, the, the way we were created is God formed us. And that in itself is an awesome teaching. And I'm going to go to it in a moment. And God blew the breath of life into us. And let me just finish this idea about the Shin... And this name of God. And then I'm going to go back to what we were formed from. Because that, that is a, a very important teaching. So so we have this letter Shin on us. Now Now, what's, what's so interesting is. Everyone knows. That if you look on a mezuzah. Which goes on the parameter of a door. Every mezuzah has the letter Shin on it. And it stands for the first letter of the name of God, Shakai, right? Shindaladinyut. Right? Sometimes we say Shakai because we don't want to pronounce the name of God if it's not completely necessary. So, what what is the connection between that name of God being the Well, if you think about it, it's quite logical. Because what we said was that when God created the universe, He mentioned this name and it put parameters on the physical universe. Well, isn't the door... The the end point of a room, isn't that the the end of a room? It can be the beginning of a room, but it's also the end of a room. So in other words, it's the border between that space and another space. Just like when God uttered that name of his, it was the border between the physical universe and the purely spiritual realms. Just like a door is a border, a connection between two different realms, right? In Halacha, we talk about a private dwelling place, Rishus HaYachid and Rishus HaRabim, you know, which is interesting because the Yachid, Echad, same word, this is the oneness of God, right? At a certain point, it's sort of like, here you've got a lot of people, right? And then all of a sudden you walk through the door and it's just, ah, it's just the oneness of God, right? So, and what is that borderline? What is that borderline? That's where we have the mezuzah. And the mezuzah has the shema in it, which is talking about the oneness of God, which is saying that it's all one. All of it is engulfed within the oneness of God. Both realms, which is just two subsets of one realm. Okay. So now, look how, look how this letter shin is also on our body is also like a mezuzah on our body. Because when God breathed light into us through our nose, that shin serves as a firmament, as a rakia, as a borderline, so that the soul shouldn't leave the body. It's a a covenant, it's a stamp, and it's the first name of the name Shaddai. This is what Rabbeinu B'chayah says. I'm adding the mezuzah elements and the universe aspect elements. But Rabbeinu B'chaya clearly says that this shin on our nose where God breathed life into us is the first name of this name of God. The first letter of this name of God. Now listen to this, just so you fully understand what I'm talking about. How awesome and wonderful is it that this soul exists within our body and it doesn't leave our body. Because if you think about it, why doesn't it go out through the ears? Why doesn't it go out through the nose most most uh, compellingly, or the mouth, or something like this? And in fact, and in fact, it's completely wondrous. Don't think it's not wondrous. This is wondrous, and let me tell you how wondrous it is. One of the beautiful things about Torah is that there's there's a a, a consciousness, a moment to access the holiness of every single moment. And that's why there's so much Torah law. And when some people first start to learn Torah and they start to learn about the different mitzvahs and things like that, sometimes they'll get overwhelmed because it seems it's so detailed and there's so much of it. And how can I, how can I possibly do it all? Well, you have to go slowly. Halacha, which is translated as law, but it really means the flow. It means the divine flow. Also means the word to walk. You go slowly, you take on a teacher, and you just just little piece by little piece, one step at a time. And and so there should be so much halacha. There has to be so much halacha, because God is showing us how to access the holiness of every single moment in all of life. So it has to be comprehensive. Not in order to tyrannize us or to depress us or to enslave us, God forbid, or to control us, God forbid, but to liberate the soul to be able to access the holiness of every single moment. So one example of this is that is that there's a blessing that we say after we go to the bathroom. And the final it's a it's a few lines, this blessing, but the. The, the end point of the blessing, which is a summary of the blessing, is we say, Baruch Hashem, rofei kobasar, umathli which is translated as, Blessed are you Hashem, who heals all flesh and acts wondrously. Right? Umafli means wonders. There are miracles that are happening. Okay? By the way, it's, it's worth it just to read the entire blessing in English just so that we understand that there's a salvation occur- that occurs every time we go to the bathroom. And, and, and here's the full blessing. I'm going to return to the wondrousness in a moment. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who fashioned man with wisdom and created within him many openings and many cavities. It is obvious and known before your throne of glory that if but one of them were to be ruptured, or but one of them were to be blocked, it would be impossible to survive and to stand before you. Blessed are you, Hashem, who heals all flesh and acts wondrously. Because when you think about it, it's something that we think is very base and perhaps very ungodly. But if you think about it, there's an incredible, God is saving our life every time we go to the bathroom. Literally. Literally. So, so the Ramah, one of the greatest Torah commentators who's whose uh, commentary is part of the Shulchan Aruch, which is the book of Jewish law. So this is is a major, major, major figure in, in Torah. And um, the Ramah explains, what does it mean God acts wondrously? And he says the following, that how could it be that the soul doesn't fly out of one of the holes in your body? <laughs> how could it be? And just so you're fully understanding what I'm talking about, I'd like to offer the following visualization. Imagine I blow into a balloon and I don't tie the end of the balloon and the air doesn't come out. (laughs) Would Would you agree that that would be a miracle? Would you agree that that would be a miracle? You blow up a whole balloon, don't tie it, and the air stays in? That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And why does it stay in? Why does it stay in? Remember, where does this ancient tradition of saying, God bless you, come when a person sneezes? Because the belief was that the soul is going to fly out of the nose. You know, when God took Nadav and Avihu, it says, it's taught, that God sent a fire up through their nose and took their souls out through their nose. But again, now let's go back several steps. We've got this letter Shin, guarding the entrance to the soul. Which stands for this name of God, which means enough, which makes a border. And just like God said that name when he created the physical universe, and that made a separation between the physical universe and the purely spiritual worlds. So, too, it made a border between our soul, which is a piece of God, which is purely spiritual, and that it shouldn't leave. And that it shouldn't leave our body. It made a border right there. Just like the shin is a border on a room, connecting two realms. Alright, I just want to return to this notion of what, what, what God made us out of. Okay? and maybe uh, maybe we'll begin to end with this uh thought so so there's two very important teachings about when it says that God took the dust of the earth and he created us. there are two very important ideas here that I want to touch on, at least but I'm just going to say two one is that God took dust from all four corners of the world that he created us with. And then he brought us into the Garden of Eden and breathed life into us. Now, this is my thought, but I think it's important. You see, how does someone administer a vaccine? How does a vaccine work? And it sounds very counterintuitive, but it's actually incredibly brilliant. The thing is, you don't want to get the disease, right? That's that's the last thing that you want. In fact, you're even going to get a shot in order to stop you from getting the disease. So this vaccine is going to stop you from getting the disease. How does it work? A tiny bit of the disease is put into you. I mean, if you think about it, it's like that's the last thing you'd ever want. And yet, it works. It's incredible. So they put a little tiny bit of the disease in you, and then your body learns how to counteract that disease. So that if in life, a person, God forbid, ever contracts it, the body's all like, oh yeah, I know that one. Yeah, no problem. I'm on it. And then it just gets rid of it right away. So what did God do? We're created in the Garden of Eden. God takes dust from the outside the Garden of Eden, which stands for exile. And he creates us out of this exile so that we're vaccinated against exile. So that we should be able to survive in exile. Because God knows that we're going to eat from the tree of knowledge. God knows that we're going to leave the Garden of Eden. And now all of a sudden we've got the tools and the ability to survive exile. That's number one. Number two, is that where else did God take this dust from? From the Beis Hamikdash. From the altar. From the area of the Holy Temple. From the place where we ask God for forgiveness. Where we atone for mistakes that we've done. God literally created us out of forgiveness. This is one of the most awesome teachings in the world. If you can't forgive yourself... Now you can forgive yourself because you're literally made out of forgiveness. What do you think you're made out of? You think God did that by accident? He can't draw earth from any other place? You know how big the world is? He took it from the place of the Mizbaith, the place of the altar, in the Besa Migdash, in the Holy Temple. We're created out of forgiveness. Literally. We have to understand that. (coughs) We have to know that. We have to know that. You see, so let's just return back to this notion that the story of creation is the story of the heavens and the earth coming together and interrelating. Picture the universe. Now you have a picture of the universe. You have trillions of planets, trillions of light years of outer space. And then at a certain point, you've got a border. You've got a rakia, right? And just like we've got this seamless flow from God's light into the physical, think of water vapor going to water into ice. At a certain point, physicality kicks in. The Rekia, that's the creation of gravity. It's where it all kind of congeals, if you will, and comes together. Understand that you've got a soul and that your body itself is a miniature of the universe. And that whatever you do affects all the worlds. Right? You have tremendous power. Society is telling us that unless you're a celebrity, unless you're fabulously wealthy, you can't have an impact on the world. It's a lie. It's the biggest, most ugly, most horrible lie in the entire world. Whatever you do, it says, to the effort goes the reward. There's a direct parallel between whatever effort you make, especially if it's a strong effort, and the amount that's accomplished, whether you see it with your eyes or whether you don't. It's immaterial. doesn't matter. It's having an impact. And to understand that our, just like a balloon that's not tied at the end maintains the air, our soul somehow remains in our body. And can I tell you something? That's God's choice. I think many of us have had the experience of closing a bank account. You know, you, that's your money. And you take it out and you shut it down. But as long as that money is in the account, it's alive. And it's a conscious choice to keep it there. You know, it's like each one of us is a, is a godly bank account. And God's got a deposit of his own self in us. You know, you talk about, hey, you know something, you're, you're a big talker, but why don't you put your money where your mouth is? How about the fact that God put his essence in you? Is that putting his money where his mouth is? He's made a deposit. And you know what? If you're living and you're breathing, the account is open. The account is open. That means he believes in you. Right? It says Reb Shlomo says something awesome about Noah Noah because the sages bring this criticism of, of of Noah that he had he was little of faith, which is a whole topic in itself, but anyway. And to explain it, Reb Shlomo says that He believed in God. Don't think he didn't believe in God. He believed in God. But he didn't believe that God believed in him. And that's what it means. And so, as long as we're walking around, it's the greatest proof in the entire world that God believes in us. Shem should bless us that that we should fix our own worlds and that we should see the entirety of the world fixed around us.